Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. If you missed me, I've only been gone for a week. I'm back. Excited to be here as always. I'm particularly excited today because it's November 2nd. So even though this isn't going to air until November 10th, we are throwing parties here because we have just passed the first major round of deadlines. Uh, And if you're listening and thinking, I didn't know there was a round of deadlines on November 1st, I haven't done a thing yet. Well, we have some uh, info to help you get started a little bit later in the show. We're also going to be talking about how to prepare for any interviews that you might have coming up. But before we get to any of that, um, we're going to talk finance. And in this case, we're going to talk about something that I don't know... I think a lot of families think about, but maybe not as many as should think about, or also um, maybe they're thinking about it, but thinking about it differently. And that's return on investment. Um, And joining us today to have that conversation is my colleague and a former financial aid officer at Loris College, Zachary Grease. Hi, Zachary. Hey, Beth. How you doing? Hey, to our listeners, good. How are you doing? Good, thanks. I called you Zachary. We're very formal here today. <laughs> yes, um, <A-okay. laughs> but um, but let's talk about this for uh, today, and that is, you know, return on investment. Obviously, college is expensive, and um, I think when I think about college, or certainly when I thought about college when I was going back in the day, we won't have to we don't have to talk about how long ago that was. I certainly. I don't think about uh, that I thought about it in terms of return on investment. I knew it was going to be expensive. Um, my parents and I talked a lot about financial aid and what how much I needed to get in order to make it feasible to go to my top choice school. Um, I thought about what I was going to study. Um, I knew that when I graduated, I was going to need to get a job, but that was kind of how I thought about it. Um, I thought about it as a very natural progression of my education. But it is an investment. And so when we think about it from that perspective, how in, in, as you think about it, how is investing in college um, different than or possibly the same as something like a home purchase or buying mutual funds or a stock? You know, what kind of investment principles are at work here? I, I think that's a great place to start because perhaps most of our listeners have experienced those types of investments. And I think in colleges cases, some of the hard data that might go into the choice to buy a home, it's a little more ambiguous. So I think that's mm-hmm. a great place to start. What I think some of the good principles are that that mimic your choices to invest in a house are, you know, generally things like affordability, what is the expense, but more specifically, what I think is going to be valuable for listeners is to consider assigning some kind of a return to each of the options they might be considering. Mm -hmm. And I think that relative comparison is where this becomes a really valuable way to include these numbers in your thought process. So you might look at for students that are saying, I don't know if I will go to college or I won't. And you could consider using ROI to help inform a student what the value of choice one versus choice two would be. And I think that kind of an exercise 
is going to be really enlightening, partly to help, you know, the student buy into the experience if they're going to go and try to maximize it. But right. I think even beyond that, I think it just helps to, to, to just understand what these directions are going to mean long term. Well, and one thing that you said that I do want to call attention to is when you are buying a house, most of us go in feeling like, okay, well, I have a budget, right? I know how much I can afford. And even if you want that million dollar house in the best neighborhood ever, if all you can afford is $500,000, because that's how much of a mortgage you can get along with the down payment you have, then you're not going to consider the house that's a million dollars in the best neighborhood, right? And yet, when it comes to college, it feels like to me, some we talk to more families who have kind of thrown that piece out the window. Um, you know, like they're like, bring it on. All options are a possibility mm -hmm. when if they actually thought about it a little bit more, they would have to acknowledge that all options are not a possibility. And that's where people get themselves into trouble. Absolutely agree with you 110%. Um, I, I can think of a number of conversations where on, on the back end of the decision, a family is having these sort of moments of, oh, I wish we had thought about this sooner. And it's hard to correct at that point. So I would, I would fully agree. And I think the earlier that these principles can start to be included in this process of decision-making, the better off a family will be. Yeah, I completely agree. So you mentioned income and expense, right? Those are mm -hmm. two of the variables a family is going to need to consider in order to explore ROI. Yes. Um, where do you find that information? Yes, I've got a, I've got four tools that I will mention. Um, I was thinking about this before the podcast. It's it'll be hard to give families a URL in in the audio, you know, soundbite and everything. Right. But what I would suggest maybe for families is take the name of the tool I mentioned, go to Google, punch it in, and that'll take you to the the tool in mind. So if any of you are thinking, I don't, I didn't quite catch the URL, a okay. Right. Um, but the four tools I want to mention, I think, are going to serve a good purpose for students who are early on in their process and just trying to cast sort of a wide net around the decision of, do I go community college for a year? Do I not go at all? What does this right. look like from a numbers perspective? And then there's also some that are perhaps more valuable the further on a family gets in this decision-making process where, for example, if you've got a senior right now, maybe you're just looking at a couple specific schools. And I'll try to delineate that. But the first tool I want to mention is Call, uh, you could search payscale.com slash, slash college ROI. And what I think is really nice about this particular tool is that it's a little more high level. So it's going to show a number of colleges and it's going to show the return on the average expense compared to the average earnings of a high school graduate. So I think for anybody's trying to think about which school am I going to go to? What's the return on a particular degree going to look like? Is there some average numbers I can start to assess to try and communicate the value or understand the value if you're a student thinking this way? This is a great place to start because it's going to start to show you what that differential is between high school average earnings and average earnings at a number of colleges. When you click into the college profile, it will show you the detail behind some of the more common majors and the degrees. So I would encourage students to go to the site and just start to explore, click into the schools, see what types of degrees they're producing, see what the returns are on the high side and on the low side. And I think that journey should be helpful to students and, and families just trying to maybe get a 
base sense of numbers. Right. The other tool that I'll mention, number two, is College Scorecard. And I'm biased in financial aid because uh, tools created by the Department of Ed always seemed to provide more structured apples to apples comparisons. Whereas if you're using a college's numbers, there, there might be some difference in the formulas used to calculate something like a return. So I liked College Scorecard because this will show school numbers in terms of expense, and it will show earnings based on certain programs or degrees within a school, and it does it over a longitudinal period of time. So they're looking at some of these numbers three and five years out, and if there's enough students graduating from a certain program at a school, it can be a really nice way to compare a degree from one school to another in a very structured way where you're really looking at the apples to apples data. So that was, that was the second tool. And the third is a net price calculator. That's going to be a, a tool that a college produces to help you estimate cost after financial assistance. So you could use that to try and, try and assess a specific cost at a college. Um, you could search the college's name and the net price calculator, and it should come up as the top hit. And finally, there is a tool that I, I suspect many high schoolers may already be familiar with, but it's from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, and it's called the Occupational Outlook Handbook. And this tool is really focused on trying to help students and their families project forward and say what what types of jobs will be in demand, what's the job growth like in a certain field of study, what are average earnings in these areas. And this should help a lot on that income side to really look at, you know, what are my options after high school, you know, college specific options or non-college options or options where a student might go to community college for some kind of a uh, two-year degree, things like that. Got it. I mean, those tools all sound amazing. I, I, As you were mentioning them and talking about some of these things, a couple of things come to mind for me. The first is I majored in English. So I have a feeling if I went and I looked at some of this, the salaries for English majors may not be so great. And so there's a part of me that finds the whole idea and concept of return on investment a little uncomfortable because I think an English major has served me incredibly well in my life and in my career, and it certainly hasn't um, prevented me from earning money, that enough money that I felt to live the life that I wanted to, to live. Is it the same as maybe someone who majored in engineering or became a doctor? Not necessarily, although I might point out that English majors become doctors. So I didn't, but it can be done. Um, and in fact, many, many people will go from something like an English major onto medical school. I'm digressing. But so, you know, I, I love the idea of ROA and concept. I think it's important to be thoughtful about um, not putting everything into ROI, right? And into the, the salary that you're going to earn, but to be informed. And, and an example I, that comes to mind for me is a few years ago, I was talking to a mom whose son was focused on becoming a teacher and he had gotten into Boston College, and he'd also gotten into a local state school where he'd gotten a really big scholarship that would that meant that he would not have to, he wouldn't owe any money, and in fact, they would could pay for it out of pocket. And um, but it was it's a local state school, and he was excited about going to Boston College, but they were going to wind up in debt. He was going to wind up in debt, 
And his goal was to be a teacher and to be a public school, high school teacher. And so mom and I talked about looking at what are the salaries going to be? And did it, was it really going to give him a higher salary to do what he wanted to do to come from Boston College or the local state school? And the answer was no. And I, I actually don't know what ended up happening with that family. But to me, that's a great example of taking ROI into consideration um, because the reality is that that degree in this case probably wasn't going to make a difference in how much money he was going to make. Now, if he decided to maybe do something different, then maybe that Boston College degree would have been helpful to him in some way. But that's where kind of the ROI thing is important. But to not to digress too far from this conversation, I think the other huge thing, right, is that studies do show, I appreciate very much and I want to be clear, both Zach and I want to be clear, right? College is not for everyone and um, not everybody needs to go to college. But the data does show that if you earn a college degree, you will earn more money over your lifetime um, with a college degree than you will with just a high school degree. But there are some things that are going to get in the way of that ROI or could cause you to maybe not achieve that goal. And so what are some of the pitfalls that people have to watch out for when it comes to ROI? Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, thing to look at. And I, I would echo your points too. I think it's a good element to keep in mind. I think it's a part of the process, but there's so many other elements that I, I think that was a, an, an awesome comment. Um, but you know, as far as pitfalls, I, I, my hope is that by looking at some of these, most of them are pitfalls once a student arrives to college. Right. So you, know, you have ROI in the sense that you're trying to decide what option you're going to pursue. You select that option. And then it's in the execution where I think families maybe have a chance to optimize some of these return-based decisions they make, mm-hmm. or they fall into a pitfall where that return they were basing their decisions on is, is not quite seen. Right. But you know, one example of a decision that could lead to higher expense and in turn less ROI would be, um, number one, the decision in some cases to transfer. And I don't want to suggest it's bad to transfer. There's some situations where a student may need to. But if a student has earned 60 credits at one college and moves to another that only honors 40 to 45, Mm -hmm. they may have to repeat classwork and stay another semester or a year. And that's another year or a semester of expenses. So that's perhaps something to consider in this decision of how do I optimize is to the best extent you can recognize that transferring can set you back. Right. The other thing, similarly, is if a student can either increase the speed with which they get their degree, they're optimizing their ROI because they're spending perhaps a semester less of expense, um, maybe by taking summer courses or taking a few more courses throughout a few of the semesters to, to try and take an increased course load if they can handle that. Um, conversely, if they declare a major late or they have to retake classwork and they have to stay another semester or a year, just like that transfer student, it adds to the expense and it lessens the ROI no matter what college you go to. So those are two I wanted to mention. And the third is similarly to the family that you use as an, as an example, right? If, if you're going to borrow this, an amount of money to cover cost compared to a decision where you don't borrow, you have to take into account the extra expense that interest will add to the same cost that another family or uh, may find without having to incur that interest expense. So I think the more holistically you can look at 
the expense side of it based on your pay strategy and, and really try and take a big picture approach to some of these decisions, the better off you'll be. Right. And then the worst possible ROI is if you go and you don't finish, yes. right? And you spend all that money and you never get the degree. Mm -hmm. So to families, you know, that is also a consideration. Sometimes the cheapest option, if the student isn't going to be happy there, and I believe me, I am not advocating that you go into significant debt, especially if your student has a cheaper option, but helping everybody fall in love with all of the good options that are there and, and making sure they find their way once they get there. Because if you leave without getting the degree, that's going to be the worst ROI possible. You got it. <laughs> Zach, thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Great to see you and best wishes. Thanks. Okay. Well, when we come back, we're going to be talking about interview, college interviews. They're not as common as you would think anymore, but um, we're going to give you some tips on how to do those. So don't go away. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Tune in to Melody Edmondson's The Space of the Waste radio program. This companion piece to her successful guidebook series, The Space of the Waste, focuses on body types and how to make your waist length flattering, no matter what your body type is. Guests include designers, merchandise managers, factory owners, and more. You'll also find out what accessories will complement your body shape and waist length. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back, everyone, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Before the break, I mentioned that we were going to be talking about interviews, um, and I'm particularly excited to welcome my guest, Nicole Doyle, who is my colleague here at College Coach, also a former admissions officer at Holy Cross. But even more importantly for the purposes of today is that she is a former reader and interviewer at Skidmore College, so she brings a particular level of insight into this process. So hi, Nicole. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, I want to start at the very beginning um, around the college interview, and that is, what is the purpose of the college interview? I always say I had a conversation earlier with a student about an interview, and I told them it's to personalize your application. It is to help the reader get a better idea of who you are and basically bring your application to life so that they know you're interested in the school and what you can bring to the school. Yeah. And I'm obviously the essay is another way in which you do that. But the cool thing about an interview is that you get to be there in real time, right? Engaging with someone, which is a different thing than putting your thoughts down on paper. And in some cases, a much easier thing for some students, not all, but for some students. It's a really great way to share who you are. Like I always tell students, you know, the answer to all the questions because it's all about you. So it's one of those things that you, you know, you shouldn't be tricked. You should never be tricked by the questions you're being asked in an interview. Right. No one is going to walk into this interview and ask how many pennies would fit in this room, which I saw in a movie once where it was like a interview for a big job at a bank. And the person said, you know, how many pennies would it take to fill up this room? And the person said with us in it or not. And I thought, wow, I wouldn't even have the faintest idea of how to get started there. No one's going to ask you that, right? Nope. It's going to be about have you. To worry. You should not have to worry anything about that. Exactly. Well, so who typically offers interviews? Because, of course, it would be wonderful if every single college out there allowed you to talk to them and share who you are in person. But the reality is that many don't. So where do you typically see interviews being offered? So places, you know, to speak for Holy Cross and Skidmore, they both offered interviews. They both offered them in person. But then through the pandemic, they started offering them on Zoom. So there are some schools that have switched back to in-person. Some do a combination of both. So that's a factor to think about. It's typically the smaller schools. But what we're noticing is some like in the Ivies, let's say Harvard Mm -hmm. and MIT, they're asking and inviting students for an interview. It doesn't put a student at disadvantage if they don't get one through those schools, but certainly they're looking for more information. Cornell only offers students interviews if they're applying for architecture, but then schools like CU Boulder or University of Utah, you can do almost like an informational interview, it seems like. If you go on their pages, you find the reader for your local area, you can schedule a meeting with that admissions representative. So there's lots of ways to interact with each of the schools, but typically it's going to be most of the smaller schools where you can go and schedule an interview either in person or virtually. Yeah. And I mean, to hit back on the Ivies again, a lot of them do have a whole core of alums, right, who will talk to applicants. That has its own share. I actually got my start in admissions as an alumni interviewer for uh, my alma mater, but um, and it's still a fairly common thing. But it's it's a different thing than kind of what you were doing for Skidmore, where students were coming to campus, or even when it's conducted over Zoom. But which actually, you know, leads me to my next question, which is, you know, who's doing these interviews? So just like you said, Beth, it could be an alum. 
of the school. And that is typically in your local area. That's most likely not on campus unless that, unless that individual is working in that office. It could also be an admissions officer. So sometimes they're visiting your school so that you're meeting with them at your school, you're meeting at their, at, on the college campus. It could be a senior interviewer. Sometimes offices will have seniors fully trained that are then interview the students in person. Like we did that at Holy Cross. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of different types of people. They're all weighed the same, but as far as that's something you kind of never know until you walk into the interview who it's going to be with, but it could be with, with any of those types. Right. The one thing I would say on the, um, on the alumni interview piece, having been an alumni interviewer and then um, read alumni write-ups at Penn is that the alumni interviews Alumni programs there, they're as much to keep alums engaged as they are to kind of give a voice to the students who are applying. And in many cases, they're only able to interview maybe half of the applicant pool. And it's not a, you know, well, these are the half that are the most competitive. It's literally, we have an interview committee in this area and they're really active and they can interview all of the students who apply from that area. And, oh, we have one alum in this area and they'll interview five people. And if we have more than five, then nobody else is going to get an interview and it's totally luck of the draw. So it's the only time where I feel like you know, we, it wasn't that we didn't take those interview write-ups into consideration, but they were a, you know, they just weren't the most important component by a long shot of the Mm -hmm. application. And I'm curious when you had senior interviewers or admissions officers doing the actual interviews, you know, how did that play out in terms of, you know, adding value to the application? I suspect it might've added a little more value because you knew the people doing the interviews. Whereas with the alums, we didn't know them. They just signed up to do it. Well, and it also makes a difference, like especially as an admissions representative reading an application of maybe someone you did interview, Mm -hmm. you were almost able to advocate too. And I think, I do think though, that as far as the, like a senior interviewer or even a part-time interviewer that works in different offices, it's the same value because they know that those people have been trained. They know what to look for. They know what, you know, kind of the questions to ask about academics and activities. So I feel like it's a real nice balance and, but it is being an advocate. Right. Absolutely. And I would say that most of the alumni interviewers were doing exactly that. They were blown away by the students that they met and they would advocate for them. Um, They didn't know. Sometimes they asked questions we wish they wouldn't ask. So there's a greater chance that alums go a little rogue. Um, (laughs) And if that happens to you, I actually do really encourage you to reach out to the admissions office and let them know if you had a not great experience with an alumni interviewer. I promise you the admissions office would like to know. Um, and because if they don't hear about it, there's nothing they can do about it. And I know there tends to be a lot of fear around saying something, but I just want to put that plug out there. Um, but we have tips to get to. So let me get off of that note. Um, first big one is how do you go about scheduling these interviews? And do you have to? Does the college reach out to you? So typically, if you are interested in scheduling, you'll go on the school's admission site and you'll look to see if you have to call the admission office or most scheduling is online. So go straight on the admission page, look under interviews, you'll see if they even have interviews, then you'll see the process. It's great now because you can actually just hit a button, like look at a day, (laughs) you can look at a date, you hit a button, you see the time and you take that. So that's typically the easiest way to do it. 
Yeah. With some schools that do offer the alumni interviews, they will reach out to you about scheduling those. So as far as, again, to that same point, don't worry if you don't get one of those interviews. Um, but as far as that is the typical process when it comes to schools that invite students for interviews. Yeah. And I think the key here is just you need to be going to the websites and making sure that you understand what their policy is, right? Because no one at the school is going to say, oh, I'm sorry that you didn't notice that we require you to schedule that interview. Right. So you need to be right. on top of that. All right, let's get to the most important thing. And I loved what you said earlier that there, you know all these answers because these questions are all related to you. Um, what are some common questions that, um, that are frequently asked? I always, you know, and, and to kind of even, even at, talk about how I interviewed, um, I always found I always would talk to the students about their college path, like what they were looking for in a school, kind of almost how they got to the school where they were interviewing at, just to understand if when they started the process, was it the same as where they were today in interviewing at that particular school? And I think that gave some insight into their process and maybe even the other schools that the student was considering a lot about the academic classes. So what they were taking this year and maybe a little bit of junior year, depending on how the conversation was. I always, I never had a set of questions because I would see where the student, what the student would say and then kind of build upon it. But every mm -hmm. interviewer is different. So then about extracurricular activities, basically how a student spends their time. What do they like to do outside of the classroom? And one of my favorite questions that I always asked at the end was, is there anything else that you want to share with the admission office? Yes. And if there isn't an answer, you know what? It's okay. But if there was an answer where the student felt like I didn't get a chance to say something that I wanted to, that was their chance to do it. Right. So I always kind of framed it. It was always academic. It was always the extracurricular activities. It was asking, you know, about the kind of overall and then, you know, allowing for the student to ask questions as well. So it, it goes by fast. And that's probably the other piece is, you know, that 20 to 30 minutes can go by very quickly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just a tip for everyone out there, if you do get that question, like, is there anything else you want to add? And you think, boy, I've talked about everything else. There's, it's never a bad time to say, I'm really interested in this school, um, you know, to reiterate that. But speaking of any, um, you know, any recommendations that you have for preparing for those questions you're going to get about academics, about your college process, about your extracurriculars? Think about the, I always say it never hurts to have a little cheat sheet too. Like if you wrote down maybe four different things of, of what you want to share, sometimes that can really help. Like if you said, I want to talk about this academic experience, or I want to talk about this activity to make sure you're highlighting just to keep in the back of your head. That oftentimes is what, oftentimes what I'll tell, tell students, have that checklist and it doesn't hurt. Like you can have a cheat sheet with that checklist, but also with your questions prepared. Have a right. couple of questions prepared about the school so that you can always reference it. The other piece, like when, when students are being asked questions that I always recommend is if you need to take a break and just kind of think for a second, yes. it's always okay to take a pause and say, let me think about that for a second and then go back to answering the question. And that's okay too. It doesn't mean that you're stumped. It doesn't mean that you don't have an answer. It just means that maybe I need to take a breath and answer the question. Right. And maybe you're just finding yourself, you're anxious and you're getting a little too wound up and you can feel it. Take a break to take a breath, right? There is... Um, 
Because sometimes the other piece of that is a student may feel like, okay, I know I want to share all this information and then maybe they're not listening to the question. Yes. So it's, it's also don't go over prepared to say, I want to, and I want to say all this information. And then all of a sudden realizing I'm not really listening to the questions because I know what I want to say. Right. I'm not engaging with this person. I would say if you come out of the interview and you feel like we just had a really good conversation and you are like, Oh, I can't believe I didn't mention this. But if your overwhelming sense is, wow, I forgot to mention this, but we just had a great conversation. As someone who has interviewed many teenagers, it probably went extraordinarily well. Right. Because <laughs> if you had a conversation, everybody was comfortable. And in my mind, that's a really successful um, interview. Definitely. And it's one of those things that you always can follow up with the interviewer too. Like if you yes. felt like I didn't, I forgot to say something or did, or I forgot to ask a question. That's another way to stay in contact with the interview, just to say, thank you. And I just had one more question. And it's another way to maintain dialogue. Right. And actually, that um, that brings something up for me, which is at, none of our alumni interviewers knew anything about the applicant except for which school at Penn they were applying to or at Cornell when I was doing alumni interviews there um, and their name. <laughs> and where they went to high school. So did you, when you were um, interviewing at Skidmore, had you seen the file? So, you know, what level of insight do you have into the student when you walk into that interview? Never had the file. We hmm. never had any information. The only thing we had was a small sheet that the student filled out. So that was the same at both Skidmore and at Holy Cross. It was just basic information. It said possible areas of interest. It said mm -hmm. some classes and, and just a, a quick overview. Sometimes, and it, it's not something what students have to do, but students would come in with a copy of the transcript just if they wanted to add it to the file. But I never really, to be honest, looked at the transcript until after because I didn't, that wasn't part of what we were looking for. We right. just wanted to get to know the student. Right. That's not part of your evaluation. And for mm -hmm. alums, it's totally not part of their evaluation. And so again, alums will sometimes go rogue. Oh, bring a copy of your transcript. Well, you really don't have to bring a copy of your transcript. It's difficult if someone asks for it, but that is not the role of an alumni interviewer. And their goal is, like you say, to get to know you. Um, any tips for things to avoid doing or mentioning? I have a big one, but I'd like to hear yours and we can, maybe you'll say mine. I think it's listening. I think to avoid trying, like that whole point of, trying not to overload with information. So just listen to the question, make sure you're answering the questions and just, and, and this isn't an avoid, but I'll repeat it again. Like just as far as, you know, the answer to the question. So be comfortable, be confident and trust that you have all the information. Yes. Um, I would be prepared. Uh, ideally your interview will not ask, are you, are we your top choice or something like that? But if they do ask you something like that and it's not, the reality is you certainly do not have to lie. But I wouldn't say, no, X school is my top choice. That's a really bad idea. <laughs> you could say, I don't have a top choice right now, but I really like this school a lot. That's not a lie. I mean, maybe I suppose it is if you actually have a top choice, but that's your information that you don't need to share right in that moment. So I would be prepared to answer that question. Definitely. Super quickly, because we're at time here, but I realized I forgot to ask about this. Any advice on what to wear um, to an interview if it's in person or if it's Zoom from the waist up? 
I think as far as pretty, it, they used to be a little bit more formal. I feel like a lot of students came in, but just comfortable, not even business casual, but just, you know, kind of look nice and let your personality shine through, I think, too. Yeah. I don't think you need to wear a suit. I think you go, what would you wear if you went out for a reasonably nice casual dinner with your parents, maybe? But don't, if you wear ratty t-shirts and jeans, you don't have to wear a suit. You're probably not going to be comfortable. And I think that's great advice. Just be who you are. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this awesome insight. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are talking about tips for those of you who haven't done a thing yet, but you're seniors. It may seem a little stressed, but we have some advice and uh, there's plenty of time. So don't go away. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm very excited to welcome my colleague, Abigail Anderson, who's a former admissions officer at Reed College, to the show today. We are offering tips for all of you who haven't done a thing yet and you're seniors. And Abigail, before the break, I was saying like, that's like gives me agita. (laughs) But thanks for joining the show today to talk about this. All right. So Abigail, 
getting started, where would you start if you are a senior or the parent of a senior? We were talking about this before, and I think there are a lot of places you can start. Um, If I were a senior right now, I would be reaching out to my school counseling office first. I think that there's a lot of work that the student and the parent can do on their own timeline, but the school counseling office is going to have a set timeline that's very hard to work around. And so knowing what they need from you, what their deadlines are, is probably the best place to start. Yeah. And also, ideally, they're going to be excited that you're coming in because their hope is to help all of their seniors. So if they've been trying to reach you or for whatever reason you haven't connected yet, my guess is they will say, oh, thank goodness you're here. Let's get started. Um, So I agree. I think that's a great first place to start. Um, What about next? I think there are a lot of different places you could go from there. Um, but I think there's probably one primary thing to do. What, what do you see as that next step? I think you have to know where you're applying. You have to know your college list and you have to make some decisions and stick with those decisions, not be changing them because you need to start getting to work on applications, essays, figuring out what other requirements, if you're going to have to submit supplemental material to a business program or a portfolio to an architecture program, just opening up, you know, Pandora's box and figuring out what's on the to-do list. Right. Absolutely. And the reality is there's still, I mean, when this airs, there will be basically six weeks, actually more than six weeks, Um, It will be seven weeks before the end of the year, and there are certainly many colleges with deadlines after January 1, but even if you want to hit a bunch with a January 1 deadline, there's plenty of time to do that. Um, It's kind of no different than the student who gets started in September, right, who wants to apply for November 1. Absolutely. I think the other thing I like to remind myself of, too, is I applied to most of my colleges between Thanksgiving and the new year, and I got it done, and I went to a school I loved, and it all worked out. So while we would love to help students earlier in the process, you can absolutely get through it if you're starting now or if you're starting in a week or two. Yeah, I agree. All right, so you've got your list started. Maybe it's not finished, right? But it's started. Um, where where would you go next um, in terms of, okay, I'm working on this list, but while I'm working on the list, I need to do a few other things. So I bet you give the same advice. I'd be curious, though, which is, I think the moment you know one school, you can say I'm applying to... Rutgers, or I'm applying to Colby, whatever it is, one school, you start keeping a list, um, like a spreadsheet of tracking the requirements, deadlines, and probably most importantly, number one, what application platform do they use? Because once you have that answer, you can start creating your common app account or coalition account or UC account. And getting some of the low-hanging fruit, like, I know my name, I know my birthday, I know my mom's middle name, I can start filling in that biographical, biographic data, and get the snowball effect going of I'm working on this, I'm making it happen, things are moving forward. 
Yeah, I mean, I do love that idea. Once you know what the platform is, or there might be more than one, that's something you can start crossing off your list. And that always feels good. Um, speaking of, do you have any advice around, you know, getting, and I know you do, I can't even believe I said, do you have any advice about this? Because you might be one of the most organized people I know about getting organized, you know, where do you where, where would you, would you gather everything in one place? You know, what's your advice on that front? Absolutely. Beth and I are laughing because I love to do this. I love spreadsheets. I love color coordinating things. So it's a perfect question for me. For this, I would go really simple. I would just open up a good old spreadsheet. I would put the name of the schools down the first column and across the top row, I'd put some really basic data. I'd put the application deadline. I would put the financial aid deadline. I would, or merit aid deadline. Mm -hmm. I'd put what platform I need to use. And then I would tr probably try to keep track of, have I sent in my transcript? Have I requested my letters of recommendation? Have I started working on the supplement? And then the big question mark that we haven't touched is, am I sending test scores? Do I have test scores? Yes. Am I trying to test again in this short time period? But something about testing in that spreadsheet as well. Yeah. And actually, you mentioned something I want to go back to, which is recommendation letters, because there's a lot of this process that you can do yourself. And then there are pieces that you need from others. That's a big example of that, right? So what's your advice on that front? So that's one of the reasons when we started this conversation, we said, start with your school counseling office. What do they need from you? And quite frankly, they're probably going to need, number one, your college list, so they know where to send your transcript off to, but they also need to know who you're asking for letters of recommendation. And the more time you can give people to write those letters, I think it's just common courtesy um, some of the English teachers in my life were writing 50, 100, 150 letters of recommendation, which is Yikes. wild to yes. think about, but not totally crazy. So going off and asking, my preference as a reader was two 11th grade teachers that you had for the whole year that you had in core academic subject areas. So thinking about who, who those two people would be. Right. And going and asking them right away. Right, because uh, you had a great line um, when we were talking about this earlier, right? It's because your, emer your poor planning is not their emergency. And so don't make it their right. emergency, right? Right. Yes. Give them as much time as you can, even if you are late to the process. You can still give them seven weeks, to your point. Yes. Let's talk about testing. You mentioned it. Um, what's your advice here? I would guess that maybe even a student who has done nothing may have already done some testing, but then there might be someone who's done nothing on that front. So I, I have worked with students who are in many boats with the late to the process plus what to do with testing situation. And if you have testing and you're not planning to test again, I think the big question is which you, you need to to decide which schools you're sending your test scores to. It's as simple as that. Right. And I know we have podcasts and blog posts about that that people can go back and reference. Um, 
if you are applying to schools that require testing, you need to make some decisions. Are they staying on your list? Maybe they come off because you need test scores and you don't have them and you don't have time to take the test or study for the test. So sometimes schools come off for that kind of reason. And that's the name of the game in in November. I'm looking up at my chart here. There are still test dates available. I mean, if you wanted to squeeze in testing, you could take the SAT on December 3rd, um, and you could take the ACT on December 10th. And would you be cutting it really close? Yeah, but most admissions offices, that time frame is probably going to work for you. Right. And the reality is you may not actually be able to get a seat in a testing um, facility on that day because it is really late. But, you know, there are even some colleges out there who will accept testing taken in um, January. So it's possible, Mm -hmm. right? You could maybe take an SAT in in January. But I, I think your point's a really good one that you're starting at this point in the process. You may have to say, well, these schools are not for me. I don't have any testing. I can't get any testing. They require it. Therefore, I'm going to not apply to those schools. And and that's just a reality of starting this process at this point. Um, if you have scores, any advice around submitting the scores at this stage? Um, so you mean making the choice about uh, whether you're... I actually meant when. Just, I meant when, when, but yeah. ASAP, yeah. I would log in. I think it's kind of like getting started with the you know, biographic date, biographical data on your application, like get the scores in, check that off your to-do list. I always think, you know, families are shocked when I tell them it could take three to six weeks for your scores to get from the college board or to get from the ACT into the hands of the admissions office. Yes, it's electronic, but it's not immediate. And so they ask for a lot of lead time. So get in there and send them right away if you're sending them. Yeah. And just in case anyone's wondering, well, they don't have my application. So what happens then? They just float around in the technology ether until your file comes in and it gets matched with those scores. I can't really explain it any better than that, nor can I explain how my computer is currently recording the two of us talking with our faces. So do you really need to know? You don't. Just know that you go, you send them, and they'll be waiting when your application comes in. Um, for anyone who's thinking, oh, I would like to know when to send, like when, how do I decide? We've done um, a couple of segments on that this fall. So just go into the archives and you'll find um, a whole show where we talk about how do you think about when to send scores and when not to. So let's, uh, we'll leave that one for another day. But um, the big piece for me with the time we have remaining, essays, 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 right? That's the part that typically is the most time consuming. So what advice do you have for students who are just now saying, oh, I have to write an essay? Hmm, what do I write about? Um, go back to our archives. We talk about this all the time. That's true. So as people who made decisions on files, we know how important essays are. Um, I would really start, I've been having this conversation with students recently. I would not start with the essay prompt. I would start with strategically, what do you want somebody to know about you? Because you can always shoehorn your way back into a prompt. So what's the most important thing for them to know? They know about my activities. They know about my academic performance. Um, Do I want them to know about my leadership or 
my love of my family or that I wear overalls for some particular reason. Like, what's that thing you think they need to know? Write the essay, work back to a prompt. Right. And if you're sort of like, I don't know what they need to know. You know, for me, one of the big places I always suggest students turn to is, well, what do you do? What are you engaged with that you really enjoy? And maybe this essay can be an opportunity to help your reader understand why you do what you do. So less about what you do specifically, although that could be a component of it, but also the why. I mean, the why is so important. And there aren't a whole lot of places where we learn, like, I wonder why this student loves or plays this sport, or why are they involved in this club, or why do they do this activity after school? We know what you do and how long you take to do it, right? But not necessarily the why. So if you are really stuck, that could be a good place to start. I love that. Your intrinsic motivation. What keeps you coming back? What keeps you interested? Right, right. And of course, I know there are some parents or students saying, I don't know, my mom told me I needed to do these things outside of the classroom. And I guess you got to figure out, well, you maybe it started because of that, but why do you continue doing it? But also to your point, there are, you can write about other things that maybe don't seem like off the, on the surface of it would be a great essay. And in fairness, certainly I've seen plenty of essays that were about topics like that where I thought, hmm, not really the best topic for an essay, <laughs> but you know, it, you. I am also sometimes surprised at what can turn into a really interesting essay. And my best experience example of this is a student who wrote about um, South Park, which the mom was very concerned about. But it ended up being um, about how he he was a redhead and he kind of enjoyed watching South Park. And there was an episode about how redheads are the devil. And then the next day he came into school and everyone was, you know, talking about the South Park episode and treating him differently and how it kind of triggered this whole concept for him of how he regularly took people for their stereotype and didn't look any deeper. I don't know. I'm not necessarily explaining it really well, but it turned out really, really well. And it was very endearing and it was very perfect for this student. So if you can write about South Park. super super self-reflective and introspective and yeah, I could, you would learn a lot about somebody's motivation. It was, it was like really cool. Abigail, thank you so much yeah. for joining today. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. All right. Thanks to all my guests today. Um, next week, Sally is here. She's going to be talking about musical theater, all of these different programs at Northeastern, what are they all about, and quirky scholarships. So um, if you have a second, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And otherwise, thanks for joining today, and we'll be back next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.